All right, well, welcome to our new series in Titus. Grab your Bibles and turn to that book in the New Testament. Uh, none of you have my Bible, but I'm on page 1,200. And 1,200. Does that help you? It's after 2 Timothy. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, down the center column of seats, there are a couple of these very small fine print ESV Bibles that you're welcome to use. And the book of Titus, the letter to from Paul to Titus is on page 646. You're welcome to grab that. Use it as we're reading the scriptures together today. And uh, you can take that Bible with you and have it as your own if you actually don't have one. As you're turning, let me just introduce our topic today. Um, we are talking about healthy churches. What does it mean to be a healthy church? And we'll be looking at this, this for the next five weeks leading up to Easter. Um, and as we get into the, the series a little bit more, I think it'll be more evident why we're actually taking this time to, to go through this book of the Bible. Um, I think one of the, uh, one of the things I see when I look at culture is we're a culture that's almost crazed about health. I mean, would you say that? I mean, that, that being healthy is an important value in our culture for many people, not for everybody, for, for a lot of people. But have you ever given any thought to actually what it means to be healthy? Uh, is it, are you healthy when you go to the doctor and your doctor gives you a pronouncement that, you know, everything's good, you don't have cancer, your cholesterol's good, blood pressure's right where it should be, all that stuff is, is, is hunky-dory. Is that what it means to be healthy? Is it healthy that you, uh, that you don't go eat fast food, that you really are careful to check the labels for everything that you eat, low sodium and not too many sugars and um, not, you know, not, you know, overloading yourself with carbs, eating the right amount of protein. Is it, is it that we're healthy when our, our, our diet is balanced? Um, is it that you're healthy when you have no ailments, no back pain? I mean, there's nothing about you that you could complain and say, you know what? I just need a little, I just need a little Advil to get me through the day. Are you healthy when you are the right body size for your frame? I mean, can you can you have a little poundage and, and still be poundage? Is that right? <laughs> can we be healthy regardless if we need to gain or or lose weight? Are we healthy uh, if we do or don't exercise? Is it based on what's going on on the insides of my body with my organs? Or can I determine a person's health just by looking at them from the from their external being and say, man, that person looks pretty healthy. How do we know that we're healthy? I think uh, in the same way that we can ask the same question about the church. How do we know that a church is healthy? Is a church healthy if they have thousands of people that have multiple campuses? Is a church healthy when it has lots of programs, a big building? and um, lots of money that funds those programs and outreaches to their community? Is a church ha uh, healthy perhaps when, it, um, when it's greatly influential and has a TV broadcast and it's not only known in its local area, but it's known nationally and internationally? What determines the, the health of a church? Because it's, this, is the, the, this is where this applies to you. We are somewhat of a transient community. Uh, many of you will be here for a, a year or so, and because of what you do um, in life, it will take you on to, to other places. And the truth is, none of us wants to, none of us can afford to be in a, a sick church. None of us should want to be in a sick church. We want to be in a healthy church. And so here's the truth in regards to 
health for us, health for, for churches. There's no way to gauge the health uh, either of you and your body, your spiritual body, or particularly the church outside of Scripture. The Bible dictates that what a healthy church looks like we find in Scripture. Uh, and that really is why we're going to take uh, about five weeks to go through the book of Titus to, to let it inform us of what a healthy church looks like. I'm going to do something that we haven't done in the two and almost three years of our church. We're going to read a whole book of the Bible in one sitting. Now, here's the truth. Some of you have never actually done that. Some of you have never actually in one sitting started in one in a book of the Bible and finished it without stopping and getting up. I'm going to I'm going to help you do that this morning. Um, and I'm going to do that because I want just the the words of of Paul's letter to to fit what we're going to talk about. I think you're going to get a, a feel for what uh, Paul is saying to Titus as we read this whole letter and it will make uh, what I say as I divide it up into small chunks about what it means to be a healthy church, more palatable and perhaps even more understandable. So I'm not going to have you read with me this time, but break out your Bible, break out your app and read along uh, as I read to you. This is a letter. Pretend like Paul is, I mean, don't even pretend. Paul is writing to a close friend of his, uh, a comrade. And receive it as if someone close to you were writing your letter, giving you some instructions on what to do. Paul, a servant of of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior to Titus my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what's good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, 
to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame. Have nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the great, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Chapter three, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward people, toward all people. For our, we ourselves were foolish, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the, etern- the, the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speak Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, it's life to us, life and light to us. And I pray that uh, today that we would sit under your word, not over it, that we would heed uh, Paul's instruction to Timothy as words that are being commended to us as um, as people who are following in Paul's steps and who have been given like commands to um, to love, serve and know Jesus and and his gospel. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to to see and ears to hear uh, by your spirit, what you're saying through your gospel to your people. And I pray that in Jesus name. Amen. And amen. So who's Titus? This is going to be an introduction to the book of Titus. We're only going to cover four verses. 
So, I mean, we should be out of here in like four minutes, right? Y'all know me. Um, we'll get into it, but these are very important verses because they set the framework for everything that Paul's going, uh, Paul is going to say to his friend Titus um, in, the, in the rest of the book. But uh, just as an introduction, uh, who, who is Titus? This, this book, Titus, is one of three pastoral epistles. A pastoral epistle, epistle means letter. And so this is, along with First and Second Timothy, a letter not to a church, but to a, a select individual who Paul knew uh, that he was writing to exhort him in a few things as he was leading um, a, a, a church of Jesus Christ. Um, obviously, Paul is writing to a letter, a guy named named Titus. We don't know a lot about Titus, but uh, Scripture does bring his name up a couple of times in a couple of different books. And so we can piece together some information about him, uh, particularly from this book. We, we learn one particular thing, and, I, and I'm, I'm drawn to what Paul says to Titus in verse four. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And I think we can learn a, a couple things from this. Firstly, uh, true child uh, suggests that there is a, uh, a mentor-mentee relationship between Paul and Titus. Probably more so, there is a father-son relationship between Paul and Titus. And then he says, not just child, but true child and a common faith. So most people think that, uh, almost like he did with Timothy, Paul led Titus to faith and uh, just uh, a very close, intimate relationship, both professional and social, developed between the two such that Titus became um, not, almost like a son to Paul because Paul didn't have any kids. But more so, he, be, he became a compatriot in the, in the mission of extending the gospel throughout the, the, the Roman province and all the areas that they were uh, able to travel. Very likely the way it happened is Paul was on one of his missionary journeys and he was evangelizing the, the locals as he normally did, talking about Jesus and Titus came to faith and somehow uh, Paul was uh, able to personally evangelize him such that um, a, a friendship, a, a familiarity grew amongst them. And at some point, uh, Titus began to travel with Paul, supported and and both served him. It, it's appropriate to say that Titus became very important to Paul in his ministry, so much so that in Galatians chapter two, it tells us that Titus was one of Paul's chosen travel companions. Everywhere Paul went, he brought Titus along with him. Second uh, Corinthians in several places tells us a little bit about what Titus used to do. Second Corinthians uh, chapter eight says that uh, Titus was a fellow worker. Uh, chapter 12 says that Paul trusted him as an emissary. It, was, it really uh, Titus was a mailman. Second um, Corinthians suggests that there is a third letter to the church at Corinth that Paul wrote that was like full of rebuke. And Titus is the is the person that Paul chose to take this letter, travel to Corinth, deliver it. And what would have happened was Titus would have stood up in front of the people, in front of the church at Corinth, the churches, and would have delivered Paul's rebuke to them for all the things that they were doing wrong. You know, Corinthians was a a jacked up church. I mean, to say it nicely, Um, Paul trusted Titus to do that for him. Um, Titus also was one who assisted with the collection of monies from 
uh, the many churches that Paul served, and he took them to Jerusalem to aid those who were in need, and particularly uh, the poor. Uh, perhaps one of the, the pivotal things in Titus's life, what he did with Paul, is in Acts 15. Titus's name does not appear in Acts 15 at all, but um, one of the great moments of history happens in Ta- Acts 15 um, called the Jerusalem Council. It's when the, uh, the, the pillar apostles, Peter, James, and John, gathered together in Jerusalem. They called all those who were apostles there with them, and they had this debate. They, they allowed other people to come in who were not apostles and discuss uh, the future of the Gentiles in Christendom. Uh, what were Gentiles, non-Jewish people who wanted to believe in Jesus, required to do? There were some brothers, some Jewish brothers that came and said they need to become Jews. They need to get circumcised. They need to uh, adhere to all of the Mosaic law. And, and, and Paul is invited to this particular gathering. He comes with his friend Barnabas, who was one of his travel companions, and he brings Titus. Titus is a non-Jewish, Gentile, uncircumcised Greek. And in the midst of this discussion, Paul stands up and says, hey, gents, let me, let me just tell you, God has used me to take the gospel um, by the Holy Spirit to, to people who are far away from God and they aren't even Jews. And this is what we've seen. The Holy Spirit has manifested himself amongst them, amongst them in the preaching of the gospel the same way that he's been manifested amongst us. And from what I see, God is not demanding that people would be Jews in order to serve, love and know Jesus. And so the council agrees with with Paul. And so Titus comes in as a non-Jewish, Greek, uncircumcised man. He leaves, thank God, a non-Jewish, Greek, uncircumcised man. And I would tell you the the greatest uh, manifestation of that are you sitting here. Because there's only a few of us in this gathering who are ethnic Jew that have born into Jewish ethnicity. The rest of you are are, are non-Jewish people. I'm not saying you're uncircumcised or circumcised. I don't I don't need to know that. (Laughter) Right. Right. So that that was a pivotal moment in the church. It was salvation comes through faith, not uh, not based upon a man. Um, doing a certain work or definitely a man being a Jew. And we are sitting here today as non-Jewish Christians, loving, serving, following Jesus as, as non-Jews because of what happened here at, uh, in Acts chapter 15, uh, replicated again in, in Galatians chapter 2. And Titus was in the middle of that. And that's good news for the church. And so um, here's where the, this book and, and um, Paul, Paul and Titus come into, into play. During one of Paul's missionary journeys, um, they traveled to Crete. Uh, I've got this great story. I can't tell it today. Of uh, I've been to Crete. I was uh, I was on my way to Iraq uh, to join up with my unit. I was a battalion S three, and uh, and we landed on the island of Crete. It was like, like it was ugly. Crete is a beautiful place, but the situation was ugly. I think I'm gonna wait till like next week to tell you that. Remind me to tell you. So Crete is this beautiful. Uh, pagan city in, in the middle of the Mediterranean. Today, it's part of Greece, obviously. It, it is lovely. It's, it's beautiful. The water is gorgeous. Unfortunately, there's new beaches there, so be careful. 
Um, but in this day, very populated, but there was a meager presence, and this presence of Christianity was, uh, was growing. And so Paul evangelizes there, uh, but he can't stay. And so he gets ready to leave. I think he takes Timothy and Barnabas with him. He leaves Titus there because there's a brewing and kind of deteriorating situation pastorally that he needs someone that he can trust to stay there and sort of make it all work out. And he picks Titus to do that. He tells, he tells Titus, all right, there's a little bit of chaos here, but I need a, a trusted pastor to do that. And I need you to appoint some elders, get everything straight in order so that these churches are, uh, come into some health. And so really the first, uh, the first four verses are, are Paul greeting Titus in, in regards to the work that he specifically wants him to do that. But as I said, as I began, uh, he really is giving a theological framework for for everything that Titus needs to do there for the people to live and minister in the church by the gospel in a healthy way on the island of Crete. And so in chapter one, this is what be, the, the basic layout. Um, he gives instructions to Titus to appoint elders and refute false teachers. Why? Because there were some people in in Crete of the circumcision party. They were Jews who were demanding that non-Jews get circumcised that were spreading, you know, false gospels. And then in chapter two, he says, all right, so there's some disorder amongst how the people relate to each other. Older to younger, men to women. I need you to set all that social stuff right so that people are relating correctly in the gospel towards each other. And so that we as a people, as a church, um, flourish the way God intends for us to do. And in chapter three, he says, oh, don't forget, you're supposed to be salt and light in the midst of darkness. You're supposed to be light and witnesses to all those who are lost in a dying world. And that's, a, that's the book of Titus. All right. So we're going to break that down into five weeks. Um, today is just, just going to be an introduction. And the theme is the theme of the book, really, but per, per, uh, particularly these first four verses is being a healthy church isn't contingent upon how large you are, how big your building is, how many people are coming to gather with you on Sunday, how much budget you got, how elaborate your programs are, or even how popular you are. The, the health of any church is contingent upon what you do with the gospel. That's what Paul tells t- uh, Titus underneath all these words here. And so I would encourage you, the health of our church is determined by how the gospel is, is transforming all of us, both in and around our church. And, and here's why this matter. This, here's, here's why this matters. Um, a church is not in a community just to, just to be a church that people can go to if they want to. A, a church is supposed to be a witness of the community. Uh, here's the, the testimony of scripture about the church. The church is the, is the point. If I could capitalize the point, that is, there's no, there's no, there's no organization, entity, physical or spiritual, that exists in our world that is more important to God than the church. It's through the church that God would um, bring about his, his kingdom until, until eternity. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 2. I don't have this on the, on the screen. I got to find it. He says, so through the church, Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's through the church that God would make known who he is and that he would defeat all those that that exalt themselves against him. And he does that. I mean, the church is not a building. It's not a program. The church is people. So he's saying through us, the ecclesia, the called out ones, God would make known 
who Jesus is and that would pervade the land. Why do we need healthy churches? So that we can do what God has called us to do. Verse 1 through 3, I'm not going to read this again. Uh, It's on the screen here. This is one sentence. Paul was a long-winded joker, wasn't he? This is like one, one sentence. And here's why this is so interesting. If you look at all of Paul's other books and letters, he never gives uh, an intro that's this long. Typically, Paul says what we see in verse four. Hey, this is Paul. I'm a servant. I'm an apostle. I've been sent by Jesus Christ and I'm writing to you. The church at Corinth, the church at Galatia, the church at Colossae. That's how Paul usually introduces all of his letters. But for whatever reason, when he writes to this special letter to Titus, he he gives him uh, not necessarily a doxology, but just a, a very theologically rich introduction as to um, what his mission is and almost likewise what he would the, the mission he has for Titus. Uh, Paul calls himself a, a servant. That's the Greek word doulos. I don't tell you that just because you need to know Greek words, but it's important because uh, it, it, in my Bible it's translated as servant. But really, Paul is saying I'm a slave like God has me in his grip. That's, this is a, prese- a, a possessive clause. So he's like, I belong to Jesus from head to toe, inside and out. All that I am, all that I have belongs to Jesus. And and I've been sent to do what I do because I've submitted myself to the thing that God has called me to. I belong to Jesus. God calls the shots in my life. I'm a servant. But he also says I'm an apostle. And this really has a double meaning. I like to categorize the word apostle as in you got your little a apostle and you got big a apostles. Let's start with a little a. So um, a little a apostle are those who. Um, God uses to pioneer churches in scripture. There are actually several people other than the, you know, the ones that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John that are called apostles. One that we see a lot is is Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas travels a lot with Paul. They have a little altercation over John Mark, the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And Barnabas goes off on his own and starts planting churches as well. I say this very humbly, but really, in a sense, um, those who start churches today have as a somewhat of a gifting of an apostle to come and sort of pull things together to create something where nothing exists, almost an entrepreneurial kind of kind of a gifting. Um, Ephesians uh, 4.11, for God has given first the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So if you believe the spiritual gifts are in action in today's church, which I hope you do, because we espouse that as a church, then God is still equipping people with this gift of apostleship, little a apostle, that they would be entrepreneurs in a kingdom sense. It still exists. But then there's those big A apostles, you know, that that long list of 12 people adding Paul onto it. Who uh, who walked, talked, slept, walked, ate with Jesus and who Jesus turned over the, the mission to be witnesses of his life and whose testimony is the very foundation of the church. When they die off, there are no more big A apostles. So here's his little. I mean, if you go to a church and somebody calls him apostle, you know, ask, are you calling yourself a little A apostle or a big A apostle? Because because my pastor in, in Northern Virginia told me there's no more big A apostles. And if you are if you're a big A apostle, then you're a heretic and I'm leaving. 
All right, use my name. Paul was commissioned by God as a servant and apostle for the sake of the faith of the elect. This is an important phrase, and this is a sermon in and of itself. And so I'm going to handle this very gently and then get off of it. And if you have any questions, we can talk about it later. Paul is saying, this is my mission. God has sent me here to bring those who God has called to himself to saving faith. And the, 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 the focus is that word elect. Okay, we're in an election year, and it's, all, it's just ugly. I was like glued to my iPad last night looking at the results of the caucus, and I'm, I'm afraid. I'm like scared. What's going to happen in like November time frame? That's why Christians need to pray. You guys need to be involved in the political process. Um, but Paul's talking about here in a spiritual sense. He's saying God is a God that chooses. That's what that word means. Elect means to choose. Technically, the doctrine of election, who it asks this question, who are God's elect? They are those whom God has chosen before the foundations of the world to be saved. Which, which basically says God has certain people that he chooses to be saved. And that choice is not based upon how good we are, how much money we have, what family we were born to, what color our skin is. It has nothing to do with how good you are or even if God, God doesn't look in the future and see that you're going to select him in the future. And then he backs up and says, this person is going to choose me in the future. so I'm going to choose them now. God's not doing that. Scripture says that God chooses us uh, in eternity past by the counsel of his own will. This is how Paul says it in, first, uh, in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. I love this verse. I love these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us before... Uh, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Did you see anywhere in the, in those few short verses that I chose God? I did my best. God loved me. He extended grace to me and decided to save me just because I was working hard and because I loved him first. We like to think that we can be walking down the road and I'm going to have this epiphany. I'm going to love God and serve him wholeheartedly today. But that's really not how it happens. Scripture says no one comes to God unless God draws them to him. He does it by the Holy Spirit. And so obviously there's an, there, there is an order to, to how God brings us to faith. But very simply, what this verse is telling us is that God chooses us before the foundation of the world. And it has nothing to do with us. He just chooses us because God is God and there is no other. And we are the great recipients of that great grace. And so what Ephesians 3, uh, 1, 3 through 6 is saying is, if you're saved, here's the good news. You're saved not because you chose God, but because he chose you. It's not you and your works. It's not you and your decision. In fact, Ephesians 2 goes on to say, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's nothing flattering in those words. It's painting a a dismal picture of who we are and the condition of our heart to tell you that your salvation, you coming to faith in God is all about him and nothing about you. Now, that doesn't dismiss dismiss the fact that you do have to respond to the gospel call. 
You have to respond to uh, the hearing of the gospel when you're giving an opportunity. You still have to recognize you're a sinner. God hates sin. He punishes it. And if one day you're going to stand before God as judge, he's going to say, um, what have you done uh, to divert my wrath from you from going to hell forever? And you're either going to say, all I got is my works, which is not going to get you very far. Or you say, Jesus Christ died in my place for my sin. And it's to him that I owe my allegiance. And it's only in him that I get to stand before you now. And then we get this beautiful, beautiful verse in Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you're a saved. Long story short, your salvation is completely of God. He elects you before you were, I mean, way, way beyond, before your parents even thought of you, before your parents, parents thought of them. God chose you to be, to, to be called to himself at the appropriate time. I grew up in church off and on for 19 years. I heard the gospel, but for whatever reason, it didn't stick. It didn't make sense. I didn't hear an internal call until I was 19 at West Point going to the book of John. We don't orchestrate our faith. God is in it, and he's the one that's calling you to himself. So Paul says, I'm concerned about the elect, those that God has called to himself, those that God, the, the, those that God are choosing. And he wanted Titus to be about this priority as well. Paul says, that's my mission, to preach the gospel to everyone and anyone that will hear, confident that those whom God has called, who God has chosen, God's elect, are going to respond with faith. And so I would tell you a healthy church is one that focuses on seeing God's elect come to faith. That's what we should be about. Now, here's the thing. You, I mean, we don't know who the elect are. Like sometimes, I mean, that, doesn't that sound like a, well, am I supposed to be like looking for a needle in a haystack on who God is calling to himself? I'm, does, does God love you? Does God love you? I would say no. We're not supposed to do that. Uh, we, we, we aren't, you know, God is all-knowing, all-powerful. Um, he's everywhere all the time. That's the, you know, the preface of the word omni. We're not omni anything. We don't we barely know who, who we are ourselves. Right. Our mission is to when given the opportunity, testify to what God has done for us and tell to other people in hopes and with the confidence that God, by his spirit, through the message, the good news of the gospel is going to do the same thing for other people that we're sharing Jesus with that he's done for us. And I would tell you, that's why God put you in the neighborhood to put you in. He puts you in a neighborhood that you're in so that in very unassuming ways, your life and your words would testify to what God is doing in your life. That's why God put you in the cubicle that you're in at work. I know you hate that cubicle, but God put you in it so that your life and your words would testify to the work of God in you so that people would be attracted to this beautiful Jesus. That's why when you go to the park, you meet the same family over and over again. God's giving you an opportunity to to put on display the work of God in your life so that they might be attracted to the beautiful glory of God in you. And I mean, they would have that opportunity as well. That's why God gives you experiences and situations in life so that through you, you're a witness of the gospel. You living out the gospel would attract people 
to Jesus. Paul has another mission. He says godliness. And this brings us to the second priority of a, of a healthy church. It's God's elect growing in truth leading to godliness. This is like one of those fuzzy ones, fuzzy ones. It's like, what in the heck is godliness? Like, how do you define that and how do I be it? Uh, look at verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Uh, I think one of the ways to explain this is that our faith is supposed to bear fruit. Uh, God doesn't save us, give us knowledge about Jesus, give us the Holy Spirit to, to help us grow um, more like Jesus and intend for us to keep, that, keep all that to ourselves. He expects it, us to use it. And the way the Bible demonstrates how it's used is it grows fruit like a tree that's dormant in the winter, springtime, leaves start budding. And then pretty soon those fruit start to show up and eventually they become ripe and ready for use. The same thing really happens in various areas of our life. And what he's saying here is the more we understand what God has done for us in Jesus, the more we'll love him and the more we'll live for him. But here's what he particularly says. Truth leads to godliness. He's saying two things. He's talking about truth and he's talking about godliness. And uh, truth is uh, a lot of times we default to truth is just knowing more about God. And definitely it is that. But we learn in John chapter 14, truth is a person. What, is, what does Jesus say? He's I'm truth. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Truth is a person. And when we get to know, we get enough of Jesus in us, it's going to lead us to uh, to, to, to really uh, this godliness exudes from us. I think Paul is saying it's not enough to just uh, to, to know the right things. Later, uh, Jesus would say the demons, know, the demons believe the demons know stuff about Jesus. The demons got truth. But that isn't uh, they don't have a salvific truth that leads them to, to know and love Jesus. I think many people in America call themselves Christians because of this thing. They go to church. They know some things about God. They might even know Bible verses and, and Christian songs, but they fall short of having a familial, uh, intimate knowledge of who God is through Jesus. And so all that to say godliness doesn't come from 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 being around Christianity or knowing the jargon. Godliness isn't walking an aisle, praying a prayer and saying that you are a Christian. Godliness uh, is born out of um, cultivating uh, fruit like you would cultivating the, the fruit that comes from a tree. The goal is not a convert, but a disciple. And that's the goal of a healthy church. So here's here's godliness. It's a life of reverence. The word, the word really means piety. It's to be pious, to be uh, religious, uh, you know, not to use that in a negative sense. It's, it's having a life of service to God. It's not how you look. It's not based upon how many Bible verses you can quote, how, you know, knowing all the books of the Bible. It's not how religious you sound. It's not about what church you attend. It's simply the result of the gospel of Jesus transforming your life and making you look um, a little bit more like him every day. Um, we want stuff to happen instantaneously, almost like we're a microwave culture, aren't we? I love popcorn. When Larissa and I got married 20 years ago, almost 21 years ago, I had this popcorn fetish. Like I ate popcorn every night. And uh, I, 
I like the microwave popcorn because when I want it, I want it. Like you get the bag out, you put it in the microwave. Two minutes later, you got like popcorn. Now, unfortunately, I would burn it a lot. But I have this nose thing. I don't smell. I don't. I don't smell a lot of bad smells. I never smell our kids' dirty diapers. Never. Larissa hated it. I used to burn my. I. I, I love popcorn. It didn't matter if it was burnt. But here's the cool thing. I. I just. I wanted popcorn, and I was okay with microwave popcorn. Now my wife makes. She buys the the little kernels and make you put it on the stove with a little bit of oil and, and, and do it that way. And I, okay, I've graduated to that now. I've graduated to that. But here's the thing. We're, we're a microwave culture. We want to take a pill. I want to take a pill to, to, to give me muscles. I want to take a pill to like slim my waist down so I, so I look like I don't eat as much as I do. And we want to do that with godliness as well. But there's no magic to being godly. There's, there's not any. It's, it's a work of the gospel. We're, we're saved by the good news of Jesus. We're transformed by the good news of Jesus. It's, it's, it's not our work. It's not our self-discipline, although there are spiritual disciplines that are required to get us there. Godliness is the response of our lives to a holy God that in his grace loves us to the death of his son. We can't become godly in our own strength, and definitely it, it's not a microwave event. It's it's not following a list of rules or routine. It's growing in your understanding and your knowledge of God and his gospel. Priority three is God's elect uh, resting in the promises of God. God's elect resting in the promises of God. Verse two. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So godliness results, Paul says, it culminates in us being with Jesus Forever. I, I love what Paul is saying here. He's saying not only does God choose you before the foundations of the of the world. He makes it possible for you to live with him and get to know him in this life. And then he makes provision for you to live forever. And so God knows and loves you. It's like a bookend of love before you even existed. God loved you by predestining you and and putting in motion those things that would bring you to faith. He loves you in this life for the death of his son that draws you to himself. And he's going to love you in the forever in that he's making provision for you after death to be with Jesus forever. That's I mean, that's good news. One writer, Tim Chester, who wrote a book called Titus for You, says this. When you come to faith, you enter a vicious, a, a virtuous cycle. Your faith leads to hope. Your hope sustains your faith. The more we trust Jesus, the more confident our hope will be. The more confident our hope is, the easier it is to look beyond our present circumstances to trust Jesus. And here's the truth. I know this is the truth in my life. All of us have situations and circumstances that we're honed in on the event of that circumstance. But God wants us to look beyond it. But, but we can't. Why? Because we lack faith, trust and hope. Paul is saying, look up. God's going to gift you with faith. And that faith is going to increase your hope and that hope is going to increase your faith and that faith is going to increase your hope. It's a virtuous cycle. So Paul's inviting us to hope. Paul's inviting us to rest in the promises of God. What's the promise? Eternal life. God has gifted you that. God's promised us eternal life. And this is what he adds. It's an eternal life that's from age to age. Literally, it's eternity to eternity. In other words, God didn't just think this up in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve had an oops moment. They did the thing God said not to do. 
I mean, God wasn't frustrated. It's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? God had a plan. That plan was from eternity to eternity. And the good news is that it included you. Why? I don't know. Yeah, I wrestle with why God chose me. And, and, and sometimes I wrestle with God, why God has me doing what I'm doing now. But the good news is that he loves you beyond what you can comprehend. And if you'll let him, he'll, lead, he'll, he'll love you to eternity. The fourth priority is in verse three. God's elect are entrusted to proclaim the gospel of our Savior. Verse three, and at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And so very simply here, Paul is saying eternal life, in other words, the, the eternal promise of God is made manifest, is brought to light, made visible in the world through preaching, through your preaching. Like some of y'all saying, I don't want to preach. It's like, ain't no way I'm going to like open my mouth and talk to Jesus about anybody. Well, let me assuage you a little bit. Here's, here's a, a nicer way to say this. Jesus is seen in our words. It's just your normal conversation. Paul is saying, when you, when you speak about Jesus, wherever you are in whatever environment that you are in, you attest to the promise of God of eternal life in this life, but also in the life to come. The promise of eternal life appears particularly when we share the gospel. So what is a healthy church? I think it more, I mean, more than anything, it's a church that takes seriously the fact that God has entrusted us with the gospel. Now, here's the, here's the truth. Um, we don't come here for fun, although it is fun to come here. We don't come here for show, although y'all look beautiful. That was, that was a joke. Um, you know, in a sense, it would be so much easier to, to just lay at home and have a leisurely Sunday morning. But we come here because God has, first of all, he, he commands us to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. But we come here because God has called us to, to gather together so that we would um, gather around the gospel and be encouraged in it, but also have the wherewithal to go out and share it with those who don't know Jesus. We can, there's a whole bunch of other things that we could be doing with our lives and with our time. We don't gather here on Sunday for a particular personality. Uh, we, don't, we don't come just because the music is good or because Jeff is going to say something funny or because they got free coffee. That's not why we're gathering. We're coming because, uh, because Jesus was in heaven. He incarnated as a man. He suffered and died in this life in our place for our sin on a cross. And through him, God has chosen to give us victory by his resurrection and through us build a church. I mean, that's why we're here. We are the ecclesia. We are the called out ones. It seems ludicrous, but God has chosen people like us to make himself known in the world. And so why do we need to be healthy? Because that task requires us to be healthy to do it. A healthy church is one that's rooted and grounded in the gospel so that the elect get saved. A healthy church is one where the elect can know the truth and live godly, where God's elect can rest in his promises and where God's elect can proclaim the good news of our Savior. It's the, it's the gospel that makes us healthy. Now, I've said gospel like 80 times, right? Some of y'all are saying, what the world is the gospel? Jesus Christ died in my place and was raised. All right, five words. 
Christ died in my place and he was raised. That's the good news. That's the simplicity of the gospel. I like to say Jesus in my place. It's, it's knowing that, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. But there's no, nothing that you can do so badly that would make him love you less. It's the good news that, that um, you don't have to work your way to heaven because Jesus already has. And for simply trusting in him, you get life in this life, but li- a, a, a better life to come. It's, it's that it's the good news that you don't have to prove yourself to anybody because you you'll never measure up to them. And the only person that you need to measure up to is 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 God. And you can't even do that because God has done it for you in Jesus. That's that's the good news of the gospel. What makes us a healthy church is coming to faith in Jesus who makes it possible so that we can not live out of our have to's and I got to do this so I'll be successful and good and people will like me. But knowing that Jesus was everything that we can't be so that we don't have to be. Our faith is in him. Our trust is in him. Our strength is in him. Our hope is in him. Our goodness is locked up in who he is. I love, serve, trust, surrender to Jesus because he's made me um, acceptable to God. Four critical things, four, uh, four critical things we'll learn as we'll, we'll um, go through this book. Healthy churches have healthy leaders. In order for us to be the church that God wants us to be in this community, a light to, to those who are looking, peering in, we got to be a, a church of healthy leaders. Healthy churches have healthy doctrine and center themselves on the radical nature of God's grace. That's just what I was saying just a minute ago. Healthy churches have healthy social relationships and community. That means our relationships are supposed to, to put the gospel on display. Older to younger, men to women, all those. Lastly, healthy churches embrace a healthy mission. All that rooted in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we aren't worthy of of your love, but you make us worthy through Jesus. And it's to him that we owe our our allegiance. Uh, We sang this song earlier, I surrender all. God, would that be the, the cry of every heart here? That we would surrender to all the things that we want to do, but can't. That God, we would surrender to all the things that we strive to do, but just don't have the strength to make it. God, that we would lay our lives down so that, Lord Jesus, that you can lift us up and live um, glorious lives through us. God, when we see ourselves as Paul saw himself, a servant, a slave, a doulos of Jesus, to know that we belong to you, that you possess us, that our lives are wrapped up in you, by what people we could be. Not people with lots of money, big houses, not talking about that stuff but people through whom your glory shines. Make us healthy, not because we eat good food, not because we stay away from McDonald's, not because we watch the labels on our food going to the grocery store, not because our bodies are thin. Make us healthy, Lord God, because we've got a good dose of the gospel, a daily dose, a huge dose, like a hoop, big, scoop of, big scoop of peanut butter. Mmm. Give us the gospel like that. And I pray that you give it to us in this book. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.